there's one of those classic innovators dilemmas where the incumbents make their money by tweaking the model slightly and selling millions of them every year. But as a result, these pieces of equipment are still run like it's, you know, 1970, basically the same way they were 50 years ago. Welcome to the Net Zero Life, a podcast for climate-conscious individuals looking to learn the lessons, ideas, and philosophies driving today's climate leaders. I'm your host, Nathan Svee. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Manik Suri, founder and CEO of Therma, a technology startup whose mission is to help protect our food, health, and planet. Manik had storied careers as an investment banker working on Wall Street and Harvard-trained lawyer working on Capitol Hill. Yet he pivoted from the worlds of New York and D.C. to join the ranks of Silicon Valley founders in order to fight climate change. Manic founded Therma in 2019 to eliminate food waste, improve energy efficiency, and reduce refrigerant emissions. These critical aspects of a net-zero future may sound foreign to you and unrelated to your daily life, but fear not, we get into them in detail during the show, and you'll see why we chose to talk about them. On the flip side, companies you've likely heard of work with Therma to reduce their emissions, namely McDonald's, Starbucks, Now Foods, 7-Eleven, and Marriott Hotels. Manek's pivot from a trajectory destined for the Met Gala to the life of chewing on glass as an entrepreneur is one example of many where individuals are making career-altering decisions to help move the world closer to net-zero emissions. Manek pulls back the curtain on the why behind this decision, and at the same time, this episode puts a spotlight on an emission area that is significantly less well-known, one that we've previously never covered on the Net Zero Life, cold chain emissions. Monik, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, the joy is all mine. There are a number of places to start. You've done a fair number of podcasts, um, so I had lots of great material to, to listen from. And it's something you've covered before, but maybe I'm giving a unique spin on it. But you had a storied career, and you have a storied career, and I think starting from why you decided to leave government and and academia and transition into the world of venture is a great place to start. And for the listener, I'll give a little bit of context, which I hope you'll fill in the the gaps here. But you you had opportunities for both wealth and um, importance. I can't think of a better word than that right now via, you know, you're working at D.E. Shaw, the hedge fund that Jeff Bezos worked out before starting Amazon. You went to Harvard Law School. You worked at the White House, right? So clearly a number of pathways that are more traditional, clear cut. You're going to be guaranteed dollars. You're going to be guaranteed, you know, an important perception. Yet you leave all that to start Therma. So why don't we start there? Definitely um, going right for the interesting stuff. I love that. I think the, um, you know, the inflection points in life come down to, um, you know, a series of decisions that compound. So it's not like a single decision, but rather a series of decisions. Probably the first uh, significant move in the direction away from, you know, power and prestige and toward impact happened before I was born. Um, My parents uh, came from a family of physicians and government folks in India. Grandfathers were both doctors and both army officers in the Indian army. And my parents were both physicians. They decided to leave academic medicine. And they were at Columbia in, in Manhattan in the city in the 80s. And they moved to a small town in central California uh, and they gave up, you know, an hour and a half of commuting for a 10 minute commute. They gave up the influence and the prestige that goes with an Ivy League medical uh, association for 
tiny town, you know, an ag town. Uh, and uh, they did it so that they could have more time with my brother and myself um, and, and have just a, a higher quality of life. So they gave up the snow and the, and the, the, the commute. Um, and I think that that impacted the way I grew up and they were very oriented around um, both community and also service. Uh, you know, while, while, you know, I think prestige and influence are, you know, especially when you're young, they're really compelling. Uh, I think I started to see from my own parents that having the, you know, the kind of desire to do something beyond oneself and to find meaning in, in relating beyond one's own, uh, ambition and one's own prestige. And, and, and as you said, importance or import could be a way to be happy. I really enjoyed my childhood. I think it was great and very formative. And so when I went from public school in California to Harvard for college, uh, that was in my mind. And then, you know, top my class, went to Cambridge as the John Harvard scholar, got into this, you know, elite uh, hedge fund called D.E. Shaw, working for the gentleman who ran the firm uh, and decided to leave finance and uh, to go back to law school because I wanted to work on public problem solving and and problems that have a more social orientation. And I think thinking about my parents, that was definitely on my mind, you know, not not as conscious as it is now, but I think it influenced me. And when I was in law school, I decided to go work in government. And after a short stint in DC, I decided that, you know, it was going to be very hard to get excited about the politics of policy. Uh, you know, the ideas are great, but politics affect so much of what's possible. And, you know, the purist in me, the idealist in me, uh, you know, died a little bit, you know, in in working in government and seeing how political even good policy is. And so technology and startup land was new to me, but uh, I was looking for something where I could, uh, you know, a direction where I could have positive impact and do it, you know, more on my own terms. And timing was the timing was such that I met the deputy CTO in the first Obama administration, Beth Novick, right when she was leaving government. She'd gone to Harvard 10 years before me, had also uh, gone to law school at Yale and was a recovering attorney, as she describes it, the best kind. And she was working on the intersection of tech, um, government, and um, law, You know, trying to build technology and, and, and bring technology into sectors that were run like it's 1950 to solve social problems. And that really resonated with me. So I left the government and finance you know, path behind. I joined Beth. We started a center at NYU and MIT together where she teaches called the Governance Lab or GovLab. That was 10 years ago. And that was my path into tech. Uh, I started working on civic technology, trying to build tech for good, as we called it. We raised grant funding for the GovLab, uh, about 15 million, and we scaled uh, an early team. And I left after a couple of years to start a company in the same vein, trying to build tech that could have a positive social impact, focused on safety and sustainability. Those were two problem areas that we had identified. And because I'd grown up in an ag town, Nathan, uh, in Fresno, California, I knew a little bit about ag and, and food and just how antiquated the food industry was. Uh, literally had farms behind my house growing up. Chipotle was dealing with a bunch of food safety issues at the time. And so you know, we connected a few dots realizing that big corporates in the food industry have a lot of budget, but are still doing things in a very antiquated way. And the food supply from farm to fork is massive and touches so many people. It really literally touches billions uh, every day. And so my co-founder, Aaron, and I had started working together at the GovLab. He was the third co-founder at the GovLab along with Beth and myself. And we decided to leave to start a company in the space. That was the precursor to Therma. And that was called Co-Inspect, focused on improving safety and sustainability. Fast forward a few years, and Therma was intended to be our second product and turned into a 
uh, a pivot really we we went from mobile and uh, mobile apps to replace pen and paper uh, into sensors and automation uh, as a second and better way of solving the problem and that's how Thermo was born in late 19 amazing we will uh just for the listeners, we're going to cover how you get into sustainability and then Therma itself and how Therma is helping move the world closer to net zero. But, you know, just even though we don't have four hours because I'm not Joe Rogan and you don't want to spend four hours with me, I do want to talk about, you know, a very Tim Ferriss-esque question, which is how did your parents teach this idea, this life philosophy of, you know, valuing family over prestige and power? Um, were there any ways they did that? Just, you know, from my own experiences, you know, my parents tried to have an intense, conver- or not intense, but a real conversation with me. I was like, you know, get out of my room. There's the internet. I don't want to listen to you. I want to listen to the internet, right? So so how were they able to teach that, like, super important lesson? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I have a one-year-old right now, so I'm starting to think about these things from the other side. Yeah. Um, how do you actually set the example that you want someone else to to follow. Uh, in my experience, it was less what they said and more what they did that resonated. And so, um, you know, while they often talked about community and the importance of service, it was watching how they spent their time. Uh, every year growing up, we went back to India. My parents immigrated from India in the early 80s. Uh, my grandparents growing up lived in Delhi in the capital. So we went back every year and would spend, you know, uh, most, you know, summer holidays there with them. Uh, my parents moved back to India when I was seven for three years. Uh, I mean, I moved back as well. We all moved back and uh, I got to know my family there and they went back because they wanted to to have an impact on, on, on healthcare in the developing world. So their original plan was to study here and get trained and go back they couldn't, I think my mom especially had a hard time adjusting to life in India after being in the US as a young, ambitious, um, you know, female professional. She found it was very hard uh, to balance work and life in that culture at that time. This is in the late 80s. Um, but it was really their orientation toward their community, the way in which they spent time in the holidays and on off, you know, when, when they weren't working, that made it clear how much they cared about their parents, their siblings, um, and, 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 and the broader family. And then I think the, 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 the fact that they continued to work in, um, you know, both in low income environments, but then also, um, you know, doing nonprofit work. My father has a nonprofit in India. He goes back four times a year. It's focused on low cost healthcare delivery. Um, I think those examples shaped my brother and myself. There's two of us. My younger brother went into medicine went into public health, ended up working in um, low-income healthcare uh, in San Francisco in the mission and, and, and abroad in South Africa and Peru. So I, I would say he's the really mission-driven one of the two of us. But we took that example, I think, from seeing what our parents did with their time and their skills. Yeah, well, there's still time for you. And, and as we'll talk about here in the next uh, 30 minutes or so, I think that you're pretty mission-driven as well. Why don't we touch on sustainability? Um, you know, So 2009, you leave D.E. Shaw. 2014-15, this is per the internet, so correct me if I'm wrong, 2014-15, you leave GovLab. And so when do you first start thinking about sustainability? I think you called out that you identified safety and sustainability within the food space as an issue, but you know, how does your thinking evolve, evolve not revolve, but evolve or revolve, evolve around sustainability and then turn into climate and then turn into climate action and then turn into emissions? Yeah, no, I absolutely love this line of questions because it kind of allows me to trace back my own growth and thinking, I I definitely followed sustainability 
as a um, as an intellectual topic and something that I thought I thought was going to be significant for society, even when I was in college. Um, Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth came out when I was in undergrad. His son, Al Gore Jr., was a classmate of mine. Uh, we were in the same expos writing class together, uh, and I, I certainly uh, believed that climate change was real and was going to be a significant social problem. But I thought it was going to be a problem that you know my kids' kids would have to deal with, not something that I was going to face in my own lifetime in such an existential way. I think that that became a little bit more apparent to me the immediacy of the problem. You know, fast forwarding to when I was working at the Gov Lab with Beth and and a broader team of public policy. And 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 you know technical or you know technologists who were focused on public problems. When we were looking at the lack of uh, incentive around climate and the inability to bring great engineering and great science together with great policy, you know, just a big political logjam going on. That got us thinking. Well, this might be a problem that the private sector and private innovation can actually have an impact on. And so I think it was through the Gov Lab that I started thinking about sustainability as a tech problem as much as as a math problem, as some people have described it. And um, because of the food supply being so close to home for me, because I'd grown up in an ag town, knew a lot of producers, had seen and been on you know farms, been in rodeos, uh, you know, unlike a lot of my friends at Harvard, uh, I'd actually been in rodeos um, as a kid. I think that that was uh, you know an industry that I didn't feel scared of or removed from. I, and, and you know it's it's funny because Fresno is not a small uh, ag town. It's like seven hundred thousand people, but it feels like a small ag town. <laughs> it you know and 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 so it, it, people think of it as a as a, a kind of a small ag town. I think certainly in the Bay Area and LA and in and, and bigger cities in California. So the farm to fork uh, you know intersection with sustainability had been something I was aware of intellectually, but initially when we started working on collaborative inspector co inspect. We were focused on reducing food safety issues and then tangentially improving, um, you know, uh, inventory management to reduce food waste. That was our that was the safety and sustainability, the twin pillars. One of the early blog posts I wrote around the the mission for Coinspect was to advance safety and sustainability. But it was food safety that we started with, um, and and inventory management and food waste was secondary. And the idea was to use mobile apps and structured data to replace pen and paper clipboards as a just better and more modern way of doing things. And in 2014, that sounded kind of novel. <laughs> you know, that sounded like, oh, wow, you can use a mobile app or a tablet for that. You know, the one forgets how recently, you know, smartphones came out, you know, 2007, 2008 is not that long ago. So 2014 wasn't that long after you know, field data capture online and offline with with structured data and and high res photos was actually possible at a low enough cost that like a line worker or a you know a farm uh, hand could actually access that technology. Therma is much more squarely focused on sustainability and climate, and we stumbled into the problem around refrigeration because of Coinspect. We were scaling Coinspect to five thousand ish locations. And discovered that most of what our users were checking was the temperature of the perishables and trying to make sure that they were keeping things in the right temperature zones. And that's when we started thinking, well, why are we making people do work on a digital clipboard that they were doing on a 
pen and paper clipboard if they don't want to be doing this work in the first place. And we're basically making them do work in a more difficult and more structured way. We're forcing them to geolocate, timestamp, take photos when many folks were pencil whipping. They were going through the end of the week and marking things as, as done. And now we're making them do the work every single day. That's a super hard friction. And as a tech company, your job is to reduce frictions in if you want to get you know widespread adoption. We're not government regulators or policymakers. And so that's when we started thinking, maybe there's a better way of solving this problem using automation. And as we started working on an IoT sensor-based solution, we realized that refrigeration had a lot more uh, emissions associated with it. And, and by monitoring refrigeration, we could reduce some of those emissions, both by reducing equipment failure and reducing the, you know, the asset downtime, uh, and also by helping to catch uh, leakage and, and refrigerant leaks and, and, and in stemming the, the release of these ultra-warming uh, compounds into the atmosphere. So that was really, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of came into these areas around refrigeration and climate as, you know, uh, uh, an even bigger problem uh, because of the work we were doing with Coinspect, if that makes sense, Nathan. Yeah, yeah, totally. And there's a number of places that will go from there. You know, it's, you know, it's funny just because stumbling into climate in, in 2015, I think people who've been in, in that space now, if they've been working on climate in 2015, they might recharacterize that as an expert just because, uh, you know, 2015 is seven, almost eight years ago at this point. Uh, and that's a long time for some people uh, versus other people. I, you know, I know we interviewed someone who started working on the space in 2003 and she characterized that as like late to the game. You know, so I, there's never too late. It's never too early. Um, we need everyone all hands on deck. Um, you called out two ideas that I want to just highlight and, and we'll hopefully come back to if we have time, but this, the idea, the intersection of operational efficiency and now what we, what we used to call operational efficiency and now sustainability, right? They're kind of one and the same, but it, it lends into this idea of, um, using capitalism as a means to affect change and, and why that is one tool in the toolkit, uh, in, in order to help move the world closer to net zero. So we'll, we'll hopefully cover that when we talk about thermo, therma. And then the second piece is this idea of the two, you know, there's two different stakeholders in the room there who can affect change. Also, there's the tech version, which is the role is to reduce friction. And then there's the government version or the policy version, which is not necessarily to reduce friction, but is to force. Um, and I think we're seeing that quite a bit right now within the emission space. We have numerous NGOs coming all along and saying, you know, here's how you report emissions and here's emission factors. But we need that sweeping hand, that government, that SEC regulation or someone else to say, you have to do this. Here's how you do it. Now you can actually use that information to affect change. All that to say is you covered um, kind of the basic principles of Therma briefly. Let's highlight those a little bit. Let's talk about them. Let's make sure that, uh, you know, you and I and the listeners are on the same page specifically around an IOT, so how you're actually measuring the refrigeration and how you're, you're you know, improving those impacts that you called out, and then um, setting the, the, the foundation for the emissions piece, both in terms of you know, demand response, and so reducing the amount of emissions used to power refrigeration, but also by um, reducing the you know, leakage of these really, really high global warming potential um, refrigerants. And so just for the listener who like want to characterize that, that's, you know, one kilogram of CO2, there's a, is one kilogram of CO2 diox, uh, carbon dioxide equivalents. R410A, which is a refrigerant commonly used in HVAC, is like 2,000 times more powerful. 
um, right, if on, a, on a per kilogram basis. So, um, so in emissions, we've got demand response, reducing the chemicals, and then also waste. Yeah, uh, you know, part of a net zero future includes hopefully zero, if um, zero waste or more circular. So just to sum that up, it was a little bit longer than I wanted to be in a monologue, but first principles of IoT, emission reduction, and waste reduction. Lots of, you know, lots of ground to cover, but I think you've nailed it in terms of the big sources of emissions. Uh, we think of it as um, creating smart or intelligent cooling requires first monitoring and then managing assets better. So, you know, as the saying goes, you can't manage what you can't measure. The first step toward reducing waste and reducing emissions is monitoring. And so uh, when we started working on Therma, the first thing we built was 24-7 wireless sensors that could actually send a signal reliably and continuously and at low cost. And that's not easy to do. A refrigerator or a freezer acts like a Faraday cage and blocks a lot of electromagnetic radiation from getting out. The sides of the fridge or the freezer have insulation and sometimes iron, steel, or aluminum. And in addition to that insulation, the water content of products inside makes it really hard to get a signal through, which is why most original first-generation sensors didn't work well. So Wi-Fi and Bluetooth sensors can't get a signal out of or inside of a fridge or freezer reliably. And that meant that the only way to really get a real-time reading was to wire in a solution. And that requires drilling through the side, running a landline, sticking a wired sensor. That's super expensive, five to $10,000. You might do that if you have a freezer full of samples you know, in a fertility clinic or in the black of a pharmaceutical development factory, but you're not going to do that you know, in a typical Marriott or a McDonald's or you know, the vast majority of refrigeration. The inventory value isn't high enough to justify the wiring. And so what we built was a long-range radio-based way of monitoring uh, the inside of refrigeration reliably. With long-range radio, you can actually push signal through dense insulation using very little power. And those two factors, if I can get signal out reliably and do it without much power, means you can have a low-frequency, uh, long-battery-life wireless sensor that can last five-plus years. So a great solution for this kind of use case. And so these drop-and-play sensors allowed us to start getting a signal out. And by doing that, we could start looking for trends and looking for issues. And so when you come back to emissions, two of the areas we started tackling and have been tackling for the last couple of years are reducing food waste by catching equipment failure and preventing spoilage and, and loss events by literally acting like an alarm and acting like an early warning sign by triggering repair and replace cycles for equipment that might be leaking and causing refrigerants to get out in the atmosphere. And so the alarm that can help catch food waste and the early warning system to reduce leakage of refrigerants, those were the two areas we started working on, both of which have a climate impact and both of which have business ROI as well. Food costs money, repairing and replacing equipment costs money, businesses are trying to save money, and we were helping them do that. So we went from 100 sensors to over 10,000 sold in 20 and 21 uh, and into this year. The next layer of the solution we've been building is essentially managing cooling assets and managing these pieces of equipment more effectively by using our monitoring data and then building on that. And so what we've started doing in the last seven, eight months, 
is we've started turning refrigeration on and off dynamically and turning it on and off and up and down in response to energy prices, grid stress or grid need, uh, time of day, day of week, et cetera. And so we can take advantage of the fact that energy prices vary and that refrigeration can hold energy in the form of cold product. You know, it can actually hold energy through the cold product inside and act like a battery. And so we've started tapping that battery, you know, kind of a, a novel way. And by turning refrigeration on and off dynamically and tapping that battery, we can save grids uh, power. We can turn power off when the grid needs it for some other emergent use, particularly when weather events or storms or extreme, uh, you know, use uh, causes the shortage of electricity. And that's, you know, how we can enroll these pieces of equipment into demand response, you know, uh, programs. In addition, we can create savings by reducing how much power is used when, say, assets aren't being utilized. So we started experimenting with shifting and shedding load. Uh, for example, we have a bunch of schools. You know, I think over 700 schools now using our monitoring product. Well, schools are closed several months of the year uh, when school's out. And refrigeration assets are generally not turned off because they're dumb and because they're not connected to the cloud. So people aren't turning these things on and off dynamically when school's out. Generally speaking, we're starting to experiment with reducing utilization, reducing temperature uh, on, on on task. You know when no one's using that equipment, and that's like turning the lights off in a building in the middle of the night when no one's working in a skyscraper downtown. So those are the second layer of the solution set of, of smart cooling, which is not just monitoring but actually managing the asset more intelligently. Um, I like to describe it to friends who are not in this space as you know we're trying to build something akin to a nest for uh, refrigeration. You know, that's kind of a shorthand because we're not doing everything nested and is doing, but we're trying to create monitoring and management that reduces waste on food loss, refrigerant leaks, and energy consumed. Just to paint the picture in the listener's head, um, you know, who maybe not be familiar with the tech, the tech, the technical terms, um, and for sure more likely, I, I came up with a few examples. The, the idea, the impact, the, the actual impact to you as a consumer um, you know, if you walk into Whole Foods, they're checking the temperature. And if their cheese section goes below a certain temperature, all that cheese gets thrown out. And I personally love cheese, um, although it has a higher emissions than, um, say, soy. But still, nonetheless, right? So, so there's an impact there you're, you're, in terms of the reducing the food waste. The predictive analysis is super impactful as well. You know, for everyone who's missed a flight on an airplane because something broke, Airplanes have had great data since the 60s, and part of the reason the uptime or the what you would call like thinking of the airplane working and leaving when it should is so good on new airplanes and even older airplanes uh, is because they have these predictive analytics, and so so too here. Um, you know, super impactful. And then you know, last but not least, like we don't leave our oven on at four four twenty five all day, right? We turn it off. It's you're the. I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there with the example that schools powering their refrigerators or freezers over the summer is honestly laugh out loud hilarious. We covered first principles as we move into Therma's work. Uh, the theme of season four is how do you measure? Um, and, and that can be how do you measure success or how do you measure impact? One of the things that the piece that Thermo also does is help companies, you talked about you, know, you can't manage what you can't measure, is that as you're building up a greenhouse gas inventory or what we call a carbon footprint, um, trying to calculate 
uh, scope one emissions from refrigerant is very difficult because most people don't have this number. So, you know, there's already one way that you can measure. But from your end, uh, from your lens, how do you think about measurement and impact at Therma? Yeah, I, I, um, I think it's critical in this space around climate technologies to measure the intervention, A, in order to improve and actually take advantage of the technology and harness it to maximal impact. And second, because I think our, our users and our customers can actually celebrate and market the solutions that they're deploying more effectively when those solutions provide measurable returns. And that marketing and that celebration can actually drive adoption. So it can actually generate more traction for our products and help us scale the business. So I think um, and then third, as a social, as a socially oriented entrepreneur, you know, one wants to feel, and I certainly want to feel that the work we're doing every day and day and night is actually having a positive impact in some way that's beyond, you know, my mom, you know, appreciating <laughs> that I'm, you know, not, you know, living at her house, <laughs> working in government yeah. right now or at a hedge fund. She's definitely excited that we're working on climate and sustainability, but um, the the way in which we think about measurement at Therma is to take as much of the um, you know, existing infrastructure that is already developed in the impact methodology uh, world around climate and build on that as possible. So uh, the EPA and others have really well-designed calculators for converting uh, things like poundage of food waste or uh, you know, uh, certain you know volumetric measures of refrigerants that are emitted and turning them into CO2 CO2e calculations. So we use the WARM WARM the WARM tool from the EPA and similar calculators to convert the kinds of things that we're measuring and having an impact on into CO2e uh, CO2 equivalent. And so when we think about the direct impact that Therma can have, the things that we can see are, for example, how many times we triggered an alert or a notification that was, you know, that led to an intervention, that led to a user doing something that would have otherwise gone un- unnoticed. Now, uh, we are a small company, you know, we're 65 people with a little over 10,000 sensors in the world, so 10,000 pieces of refrigeration. There are 90 million commercial refrigerators in the world, commercial not including the 1.4 billion residential. So what we're doing across that 10,000, give or take, is, is you know, um, I think you know, it's starting to get interesting statistically, but it's certainly not representative of what might be possible at scale. Uh, but we're starting to see directional signs that, hey, we can catch a certain number of equipment issues or a certain number of uh, you know, uh, temperature outages, what they call excursions in the industry. Uh, that would have led to a problem with the product. And then we can apply assumptions around, well, how much of that product would have been thrown out? How much of it would have been sold anyway? Um, you know, talking to advisors in the industry about what's reasonable, what do businesses really do, not what's written in the food safety codes. And then we can kind of calculate, okay, that's the amount of poundage of food that we protected or per location per year with a thermosensor deployed in their refrigeration. And then we can extrapolate from that to you know, our larger customer set. So we build the methodology around our climate impact from the bottoms up using uh, the number of excursions or the number of loss events prevented per location per time interval. And then we apply that logic and some assumptions about how much of that could scale to others similarly situated. 
And then we take a conversion tool like the warm EPA calculator, and then we turn that into a CO2E. We're starting to put that into the product. And I say starting to because literally in Q4 of this year, we've developed uh, the first dashboard UX UI and mobile UX UI to show some of that to the user as an actual, um, you know, cl- the climate math in a way that might be relatable, you know, whether it's number of trees that they, you know, planted or saved or the number of, you know, uh, vehicles they took off the road by deploying Therma. But I think that's the beginning, you know, starting somewhere, even if it's a low base, even if it's, you know, a small number of customers, uh, by building into the work and into the product, uh, a methodology that could scale. Our hope is that as we get from 10,000 to 100,000 and from 100,000 to a million piece of refrigeration, that same mindset and that same approach can scale. The easiest climate impact to measure in some ways is the energy consumption that we're working on now, this new version, uh, this expanded version of the solution, because there we can actually measure energy consumed pre and post therma, and we can also measure uh, you know, demand response participation. So the number of events and the number of minutes in those events that we enrolled equipment into. And there are well-established methodologies for turning those energy consumption or energy savings and DR participation into CO2E. Um, others have been building that math for, for a decade now. And, and then we can take our intervention and, and run it through the same math. Just before we move on, are there you know other numbers you can share in terms of you know, packages of food waste avoided um, or kilowatt hours reduced, megawatt hours reduced? Yeah, it's it's early, and so we've we've been trying to you know be cautious about not overstating or or over concluding from you know uh, the early data. But I think what we're seeing is uh, on our monitoring product, which has now been in the world for two and a half years. Um, we're able to see, you know, in the range of a metric ton of CO2e per uh, median location per year. So that's like a, a restaurant, if you will, for example, uh, or a, a cafe, cafe or a bar. That's just on food waste reduction. Uh, I think what we're seeing on energy is in the range of 10% savings on the energy bill every month. Um, you know, again, early data, and uh, we don't want to, you know, uh, conclude that that can be done across a million locations. But um, you know, we're talking about um, meaningful numbers. You know, ten percent savings, uh, you know, per location. These locations are commercial establishments, um, and so reducing the energy pull, you know, in that zip code starts to look meaningful. You know, even across a thousand locations. Hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent, and 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 also just you know as we move to what Nat Bullard from formerly Bloomberg Neff calls uh, a three hundred percent renewable grid, because now we're using more variable power um, from uh, both solar and wind. It's so important that we have demand response programs that we're increasing energy efficiency so that we can, you know, move away, turn this narrative uh, of people saying, you know, we have to have more uh, commoditized forms of energy because what happens when you need it? Well, when you have demand response, then you can rely on more variable um, power generation. Just um, one quick caveat for the listener. So when we say Q4, we mean Q4 2022, in case you're listening to this in 2023 or, or, or later on. You know, you mentioned energy efficiency, which I think is a, a, one of the things I wanted to cover, uh, which is that 
energy or efficiency as a service is is not a new idea. Um, there are energy service companies who, for years now, have been going into businesses and saying, you know, the way you run your building is completely backwards. Like the person who developed it and built it built it on as cheap as possible. But we'll come in, we'll replace all your HVAC, we'll replace your lighting, we'll create these, um, you know, the smart HVAC thermo cooling, uh, and then we'll share the savings bills. Why is it that refrigeration was never part of that calculus? And, and, and do you see that changing over time? Yeah, I think that's um, spot on as a question. We think there are a few reasons why refrigeration wasn't part of the first generation of assets that was overhauled. Um, and I do think it's changing, and I think it will continue to change based on a number of factors you know, that, you know, that have to do with both the economics um, and the policy. Um, realities that we live in, that we live through and we're, we're living you know through so I think the you know the first part of your question about you know why wasn't it part of the, the early upgrades um, well there, there's a few things I think to consider first refrigeration is you know ultimately you know about preserving and and protecting human well-being as much as the planet's well-being so when you think about the stuff that gets stored in refrigeration, you're talking about, you know, food and pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, two of the most, you know, the pillars of, of modern society without which we would be struggling. <laughs> I think the COVID vaccine supply chain and the challenges around the cold chain in 2020 and 2021 reveal to a lot of people how important refrigeration is. Um, you know, when you really need the stuff that it makes possible. So with that importance and with the critical nature of those products, I think it was very difficult for early entrepreneurs to justify the risk of spoilage and loss and compliance, uh, you know, hurdles of dynamically managing these assets. With HVAC, if you're turning things on and off dynamically and you have an error or you have a uh, you know, uh, you know, you go over much in one direction or the other. You know, you tend to have a guest or a customer be unhappy or uncomfortable. You know, a room is too warm in the summer, or a location is a little too cold in the winter because someone set the algos, the algorithms, a little bit, you know, off, or uh, the software didn't work, or the hardware broke. But generally, you don't have you know life and death problems. I think refrigeration is different, and so early entrepreneurs tended to say, well, if we can't guarantee we're going to avoid a spoilage or a loss event, we're not going to touch this asset. And certainly customers, when we talk to them and ask them why they haven't considered doing this with version, their first response is, we don't want to have a spoilage or a loss event or a compliance issue on our hands. Because of Therma's monitoring product, because we've been able to crack or you know attack this problem around how to get sensor signal out of the inside reliably, I think that that opens up the possibility of managing the asset more intelligently. But you know, it, as I was saying earlier, Nathan, most refrigeration is not monitored remotely and wirelessly because it was technically hard to do so. And wired sensors are just too expensive for most people to justify installing. And so you have a lot of dumb, i.e. unmonitored assets. That makes it really hard for a customer to even open up the possibility of you turning it on and off. A Marriott or McDonald's does not want to have a food safety liability on their hands, uh, or let alone you know food spoilage. So I think it's the nature of the asset and the, what it stores within it. Um, you know that's that's probably in my mind the biggest reason why these were left you know untapped as loads. Uh, but related, you know, I think this is an antiquated industry. 
um, you know, and I think that the refrigeration manufacturers and distributors, their sweet spot is really in, um, you know, uh, building, you know, insulation or building, you know, more spacious or more, um, you know, uh, generally speaking, slight tweaks on existing models that have been around for decades, literally 50, 60, 70 years. The companies that make refrigeration are multi-billion dollar conglomerates that have been doing it since World War II. And so they're not in the business necessarily of designing uh, sensors or building data science. And so are they going to start connecting those assets to the cloud and then start parsing energy data and time of use data and turning these assets up and down dynamically? Unlikely. It's just not their core competency. Uh, to use business speak, and so I think that there's you know just a you know a, one of those classic innovators dilemmas where the incumbents make their money by tweaking the model slightly and selling millions of them every year, but as a result, these pieces of equipment are still run like it's you know 1970, basically the same way they were 50 years ago. I think it's changing. To the second part of your question, the energy world and 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 the way in which energy is consumed, I think, is going to. Uh, be forever altered by the climate problem. Uh, we we were able, I think, to subsidize low cost energy in the 20th century because we were letting the planet pay the bill. Um, and we can't do that in the 21st century because we also uh, have to share this planet, uh, you know, w- with with our future selves. And 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 we're living through the problems of climate change. You know, my parents live in the Central Valley, and there were wildfires 35 miles from our house several times in the last four years. It's happened multiple times that areas around our house have been evacuated. Um, I actually drove through the wildfires uh, in 2017 in Napa. I was up there for holiday with my wife. We'd gone for our anniversary weekend um, five years ago. And um, we were there the night that the Tubbs fire started. It was a Sunday night. It was like really uh, windy. And we actually drove, they evacuated us and we drove through the fire. I mean, there was fire on both sides of the highway as we were driving at like 80 down to 12, uh, like 15 fire trucks went by us. And that was the first time I'd experienced a wildfire from the inside out. And, um, and I live in San Francisco, so they're happening every year, uh, around Northern California. I think that the climate math as well as the, so the internalization of emissions that's happening across assets and that's happening, you know, both from the public markets and pressures on, on, on public companies, and then down into the private markets, is going to cause the cost of emissions to go up for everybody. And then, you know, the electricity, you know, prices being what they are already, you know, I just think it's too expensive for people to waste or use power in this super inefficient way. And so I think that that's part of the the background pressure on assets like refrigeration to modernize. You know, you've got more and more climate pressure, more and more emissions, uh, internalization, and then you know, energy prices are just too high to be this wasteful. Uh, and then I think that there are, you know, social pressures. You know, people want to do the right thing and want to feel like they're not contributing to the problem. I really do think that lo- a lot of people actually um, care, um, especially when it's in their interest to care uh, economically. They want to do the right thing. And if you can make it easier and cheaper, um, that that's a winning strategy for social change. So um, I suspect a lot of these assets will be intelligent 20 years from now and dynamically managed. And certainly, I hope so. Yeah. Although conversely, I think a lot of people, when it affects your balance sheet in the opposite way, they might not care, right? Or, 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 or even more perversely, they might push against it. And I think in, yep. um, in, in the interest of time, uh, we'll have to punt on this question. Um, but you know, round two, 
I'd love to hear if the refrigeration companies that you mentioned who are making billion dollars, billions of dollars selling these highly intensive global warming potential refrigerants are interested in partnering with Thermo if they see business opportunity or if it's more of, you know, we actually need to push away this business. But in the interest of time, I'd love to transition to, you know, take off your Thermo hat and put on your Monarch hat. Um, and just like your own personal value system. We talked about... Um, you know, the role of government, the role of capital or capitalism, although you know, the reference, the cross-reference you just made in terms of, you know, capitalism can also be used to prevent change. We keep this short. How do you think about those two as the different levers in terms of like affecting change towards a, a more net zero world? Tools in the toolbox. You know, I think that there, you know, one needs many different tools to, I assemble a lot of stuff these days because I have a 15 month old. So I find myself trying to trying to use every tool in the toolbox you know, to build these home kit uh, you know, toys and, and, and extravaganzas. Uh, I think the policy lever and the regulatory lever uh, or tool are necessary and, and can be highly effective in shifting incentives or restructuring incentives. That's where I think you know, that's where regulation and policy can do their some of their most, most effective work. I think that the private sector can channel technical innovation in ways that can scale quickly. And if you take technology and uh, and 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 both experiment to uh, deploy it uh, effectively, and then to scale that uh, to as many people as possible, the private sector can be really valuable in 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 the experimentation, commercialization, and dissemination of technologies that take advantage of the existing incentives. So I don't know that those solutions necessarily change the incentives, but if the incentives have been set appropriately by regulation and policy uh, and, and, and legislation, then I think uh, technologies can, can, can make it possible to drive behavior change and firm level as well as individual level change. Amazing. Uh, if there's one person that's helped shape your thinking around sustainability and at zero emissions, who are they? I I find myself, you know, there's so many people I think who are really influential and really thoughtful. I really enjoy the work of Project Drawdown. Uh, for those folks who haven't checked out Project Drawdown, they do an excellent job of ranking solutions to warming. Um, there's, you know, just a really good and really approachable way of seeing what the solutions are by category and by climate impact. Uh, it's a nonprofit group, I think founded around 2014. Um, and you know, there's a book, you know, the namesake book uh, as well. But I think the um, the Project Drawdown uh, community has been really influential, uh, certainly in my thinking. I have to say that um, former Vice President Gore, uh, you know, I'm old enough now that I remember watching An Inconvenient Truth in college and having you know thought, wow, that's a really that's really a massive problem. I feel bad for my grandkids, but it was the first time I'd ever thought about climate change in any real way. Like before that, I think I only heard about the ozone layer getting depleted and the penguins and others, you know, I thought were going to suffer in the in the 80s and 90s. Growing up, it was like an ozone layer depletion problem, not a existential human problem. So definitely Al Gore's contribution to mainstreaming the problem, at least for, for, for my childhood uh, in college and early professional years was invaluable because I came back to it later professionally. 
John Dory's book, you know, Speed and Scale is good and, and has a nice job of laying out solutions, very structured, very easy to follow. Um, you know, the many others, those are a few that come to mind. Yeah, great. The irony of you starting in the ozone, um, which was depletion, which was called by HEFCs, right? Totally. Refrigeration. You came Comes full, full circle. circle. You came full circle. Um, you know, I'm going to skip the other questions, but I'll let you know what they are in case you do want to. In case you do want to highlight them, but typically I ask if there's any sustainability influencers you follow on social media. Both Project Jawdown and John Doer both have um, Twitter that people can go follow. Um, so that's a question I typically ask. But if there's anyone else that you want to highlight, and then I also ask, you know, what's one book, podcast, or other form of media that's been influential? But Project Drawdown does has the book. Have you called out? And Inconvenient Truth is a film that people can go see and so but if there's any other resources that you've enjoyed as you've had your climate journey that you want to share um that people should go check out here's the space to do it so many great resources out there i i feel like um you know there's many many folks that are aggregating information i really enjoy as an innovator and entrepreneur i really enjoy uh climate tech vc um uh, CTVC, uh, you know, we've we've got a number of friends affiliated with the newsletter, but also like I I really enjoy reading it um, and find it as a valuable and easy to follow summation of various climate tech news. It's a little oriented toward for profit innovation and for profit um, you know uh, venture backed uh, solutions, but it's definitely an excellent resource. Uh, My climate journey is a nice and and thoughtful pod. Um, you know, that, that, that has some great stories. And, um, uh, I think there's just a lot of folks in, in nonprofit and, and the public sector that are, are doing good work. You know, I think DOE and all the people who've worked in or work in DOE and have a number of friends who've worked in DOE and kind of unsung heroes, but the stuff they've done to create the, uh, policy framework and the innovation potential for the private sector, you know. Worth checking out. I, I check out a lot of DOE websites these days because we're trying to get really serious about some of our grid flexibility and DER work. And there's like a lot of good resources at DOE. I'm not one to usually recommend government websites, but um, some of the DOE energy resources are really good. Yeah, yeah. DER being demand, um, energy response or, or grid flexibility. Monica, it's been a pleasure. Um, super appreciate your time. If people want to follow your work or get in touch with you directly, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Would love to stay in touch with anyone who's interested. Uh, you can check out uh, uh, Therma at hellotherma.com. That's hello, T-H-E-R-M-A, therma.com. We're on social, on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and Insta. So check us out. Hello Therma is the handle. Um, I'm very much interested in personally connecting. I'm Monik V. Suri, V for Varun, Monik V. Suri on Twitter. I'm also uh, Monik at hellotherma.com. Feel free to drop me a note. We're hiring. We've got a dozen open roles. Uh, We're just about to announce a new fundraise and we're always looking for partners. So please stay in touch. Thanks again to Manic for joining us today. You can connect with him on Twitter at Manic V Surrey, M-A-N-I-K-V-S-U-R-I or via email manic at hellotherma.com. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer, and it's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climon. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our socials at the Net Zero Life. 
Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.